your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, as always. Alongside us, Carlos Colazzo, our guest today from Baseball America. We're so thrilled to talk to Carlos again. He is the draft writer at Baseball America, done it for multiple years now, and also the co-host of the Future Projection Podcast with Ben Badler. We love talking to Ben about the international side of things. He's provided so much uh, great info for us and the listeners, especially related to Christian Mana, James. Uh, shout out to him real quick. Can we talk about him before we get to Carlos? Just a shout out to Christian Mana now where we're seeing him throw in Kannapolis. Well, it's pretty funny. Like Ben always comes on and he's like, you know, we have him talk about the top guys in each class, like I'm sure everybody else does. And then he's like, just like gives us these little cookies like, oh, yeah, take a look at like this guy. But then he also like probably talks for five or six minutes on like some random guy. And like one of those guys was Christian Mena and he's he's been really good in Kannapolis as like a whatever, 18 year old or whatever. So, yeah, kudos to him. I'll I'll never like forget that conversation, like as he moves through the minors, basically. Yep. It was uh, I think. Mena was 17 when Ben was like, yeah, start paying attention. So now he's 19, 20 years old, and turns out he was on it. So that is what you get at Baseball America. Be sure to subscribe and also follow Carlos on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. So let's start here. Let's recap what the White Sox decided to do in 2021, Carlos, because Colson Montgomery, prep player a little older, and Wes Kath in the first couple of rounds. What do you see so far in those two players? Yeah, Colson Montgomery. I feel like his name, as we got closer, his name was really just tied to the White Sox pretty heavily. Um, I think that was one one of the mock drafts where a lot of people got it right and getting getting a mock draft pick right in the 20s is always fun. But Colson especially has has been really good. I know he's one of the the brighter spots of this White Sox organization at this point. We have heard, and just to be clear, I have not spent as much time on the minor league prospect side of things as some other people at BA, guys like Josh Norris, Jeff Ponce, Kyle Glazer. They've really been grinding on that side. But just in conversations that we're having among the, the baseball America office and hearing some of the scout b- feedback we've been getting on Colson Montgomery especially has been really good. I mean, he, he was an impressive athlete with um, really exciting hit and power tools coming out of high school, but to see him putting up the numbers that he's managing in Kannapolis so far this year, uh, I think he's been dealing with some sort of like minor hand injury as well, but 304, 409, 482, good strikeout and walk rates. And, and I think we're only going to see him continue to get more into his power. Wes Kath, I don't know if he's had quite the electric start uh, to the season that Colson has had, but a similar deal uh, as a prospect coming out of high school, really intriguing hit and power tools. And, and we'll see if he can kind of start to get things on a roll like Colson has. But I'd say um, just from kind of from the outside looking in, like I was saying, you guys probably are bearing down more on, on the White Sox system at this point than I am. Um, but Colson Montgomery has been one of the players um, – just in the minor leagues in general, who has kind of stood out to me uh, the most, just just from the little work that I've been doing on that side of things. So we got plenty of draft talk on tap, and I, I love to hear the perspective. Obviously, Baseball America is the go-to. Carlos, you specialize in the draft. You know, over the last three years, it hasn't been particularly normal or consistent in the way the draft is covered. I, I'm curious how scouts have, I guess, uh, moved on from that period in, in 2020 to 2021, where there was so much scouting to do now to this point. And as the draft is approaching here in July, I just am wondering how organizations are adjusting since the last time we spoke and, and how congested things were following COVID. Yeah, it feels like we've reached kind of a, a new normal at this point. Um, you're right. The last few years have been really hectic. It seemed like for two or three straight years, there was just something uh, going on that, that really impacted things from from the scouting perspective, from covering the draft for the players themselves, seasons being canceled, schedule being changed. But now um, we, we've had a, a year or two of this, and it feels like people are kind of settled in. We're, we're getting used to the new rhythms of the schedule. I think uh, having the draft later is beneficial. 
beneficial for a lot of players. There are a number of injured players who maybe we'll touch on uh, later in this show who are going to benefit from just having uh, that extra time to get out and, and whether that's get in, on the mound for bullpens, go to a college summer league uh, and continue to show the reps. I think that's beneficial. There are new opportunities for, for players who are not necessarily the top one or two tiers of prospect who, who have a chance to just be in an environment where the data is being collected, video is being collected, just more avenues for players to be seen. I think that's all beneficial. And I think from a fan perspective, tying the draft to the All-Star game, last year the ratings uh, showed that that was a pretty good move. Um, and I think hopefully the draft continues to be uh, an exciting event for baseball fans because I do understand that just the inherent challenge of the baseball draft. You're, you're drafting players who are basically going to disappear and then resurface years in the future unless you are a hardcore, passionate baseball fan, who I'm assuming most of the listeners of this podcast are, who are following these guys through the minors. So it's tough, but I think it's beneficial in a lot of ways. And I think teams are, have, have slowly adjusted to this. And I certainly feel like I'm more adjusted, um, although it, there's, there's always challenges that you, you still have to uh, deal with. I mean, I want to ask you that. Like, you, you'd still prefer it, like, right now, right? I hate this, Carlos. Like, I, can't, <laughs> I can't, like, I, I don't know. And I know you you probably talk to mm. more teams. Like, you know, I talk to the White Sox occasionally. And, yeah. like, it, it seems like teams are ready to draft. Um, Obviously, they're going to work for the next five weeks still, you know, and they have stuff for next year. But, like, I just think they're ready. And I wrote up the rookie leagues for, mm-hmm. you know, for future Sox. And it's just like those rosters without draft picks. It's just weird. It's still weird to me that it's, yeah. that it's this late. No doubt. Teams are ready to draft. There's a lot of time where they just have to kind of figure out what they're going to use. How are you going to use all this time in a beneficial manner? I think uh, for a lot of teams that turns into more workouts, pulling players in and bringing them in. And also, I mean, from a team perspective, there are, there are events going on right now for next year's draft class. Typically, teams are going to want to bear down on the Cape Cod League and focus on next year's draft class. Well, there's a lot of really prominent 2022 prospects who are also playing. And you kind of have to juggle both of those classes. And certainly from a scout's perspective... Uh, going from 40 rounds to the new normal of 20, um, it's not great for them because uh, they really like doing a lot of work on day three, getting their guys on the third day. Uh, I know a lot of opinions of, of people in the game are that we want to draft as, as much as we can, have as many rounds as possible and fill out these rosters like you were saying. Um, I still don't know if I have a, a complete grasp of how just the minor league shakeup plus the draft rounds being reduced, how that has really impacted the the entire ecosystem of the game, it certainly makes sense if you're short. If you're if you're making the minors smaller, you would draft fewer rounds because you need fewer players. So I go back and forth. I think there have been positives that you see with players in the minor leagues. There have been positives uh, for players in the draft. The new CBA has some new protections for players who are invited to the combine and go through the medicals. That's still such a just an awkward. Um, situation for players and teams because it's it's just not like the NFL draft or the NBA draft where you declare and you know you're going. High school players have leverage. Uh, you don't want to hand over different information. So there's so many moving parts. Uh, I think you can find pros and cons in all of it. I certainly gave it a, a positive spin there. I like to kind of look at all the positives because it's just what we have to deal with. Um, and it's, it, it doesn't seem like it's going to change anytime soon. Uh, but I do think you're right. If you talk to teams, I think they would much prefer to have the, the old format. They could draft, get their things done. Uh, and then have a normal summer where you can really focus on one class at a time. But uh, I mean, another benefit for the players is we've got the College World Series going on or about to go on the playoffs and Super Regionals are happening today. I think it's nice that we can kind of focus on the college game and none of those players really have to worry about being drafted while they're playing these important games. Um, and maybe you'll see players move move their, their needle and their stock more significantly because teams do have the time to kind of really bear down these outings and, and see their performances and see how things change. Um, but you're, you're certainly right. There are a lot of moving parts and I don't blame you if, if you do prefer the old version. So, you know, we're getting closer, pretty deep into this process. I know you guys, um, we're in the process. I don't know. Do you have the, the 500 up? I know that you were in the process of doing that, but mm-hmm. just in general, like what are the strengths and weaknesses of this draft class? Yeah, we'll have the 500. I believe we're shooting for this week. Last week we updated our top 300 and it was a lot of focus on the top 100 prospects in the class, really bearing down to try and get those top guys in order. And then um, been spending the last few days or so and the next the next few days bearing down on more of those depth players. But um, in terms of this draft class, I think the strengths are on the college hitting side at the very top of the draft. We had a, has a chance to be one of the most hitter heavy first rounds that we've ever had. And I think a large part of that is, is the strength of the college 
college hitting class, but maybe an equally or, or an even bigger part of that is just the weakness of the college pitching class. Um, and it seems like teams really prioritize college arms in the first round. Every team wants to have those premium proven college pitchers to take in that first round because you get some upside and you don't have the risk of the high school demographic. This year, that class has been absolutely wrecked by injuries. Um, we've had a number of players who had first round talent who are out for the year uh, or are currently recovering. Guys like Peyton Palette, guys like Connor Prelip, who, who's thrown some bullpens recently. Uh, Landon Sims, who was looking like a potential top 10 pick early in the year. Uh, and then you also have guys like Kamar Rocker, who's coming back after the Mets um, situation last year when he was drafted 10th overall and the sides didn't agree to a deal after something popped up in his medical. He's he's taking the mound for an indie ball team. Um, Carson Wisenhunt is another player who didn't throw any this spring for East Carolina and it was a potential middle of the first round arm, uh, potentially the best left-handed pitcher in the college class. He was declared ineligible uh, by the NCAA this season and is now going to pitch in the Cape. Uh, as we record this podcast, actually, he's going to debut tonight uh, on opening day in the Cape Cod League. So so things could change. Um, there are a few arms who are certainly trending up like a rocker and, and potentially a Wizen Hunt, but we're, we're looking at maybe one of the worst college pitching classes that we've ever seen, and that comes only a few years after the 2019 class, uh, which was getting similar feedback from the industry. But in hindsight, that class is actually looking pretty good, at least from the the, the few players who were drafted in the first round. So I'd say in general, hitting strengths, college pitching, extreme weaknesses. And then in the high school class, good pitching depth in the high school side. Um, and I think there's some really special high school bats at the top end. This class is not as strong on athletes as a year ago when it seemed like we had just a massive amount of really special athletes um, in, in all sorts of demographics. Whereas this year, more corner profiles um, and a lot of uh, big league bloodlines types, maybe the most um, like bloodlines and former athletes, uh, kids in this draft class and, and premium prospects. Cause you'll have draft classes where yeah, there's a player who, who's maybe in this draft class, but is not a top three, top five round. We have a ton of those players in this year's draft. Yeah, so the I mean the bloodline thing is interesting, but you know going back to the college pitching, so there's so many guys though that if healthy, like could have been first rounders, right? So it just seems like I'm just like fascinated to see, you know, like the first one off the board and when, and then you know which teams are gonna be able to pay these guys or do whatever, you know, and you get into the 30s, is that where like your Landon Sims and some of these mm-hmm. like. Like, what are the chances? I mean, these guys are probably still going to sign, you would think, if they get money, but some of them could go back, I guess, theoretically. Yeah, absolutely. That's always a possibility. It's tougher for the college guys to go back because your leverage really just falls off a cliff. If you're if you're a senior, you see how teams treat seniors in the draft, and maybe it's better to just get the money that you can now. But like you were talking about with first college pitchers off the board, in our last mock draft, we had the first college pitcher off the board at pick 17 to the Phillies, and that was Gabriel Hughes, who just did not have a great uh, regional performance. Um, so he could go anywhere in the back half of the first round. I feel like he he's one of the guys that you'd point to um, as a candidate to be the first pitcher off the board. Another guy would be Kurt Cooper Jerpy at Oregon State, who's arguably been the best college performer in college baseball this year. He's been fantastic. And, and then you, you just look at a guy like Cooper Jerpy and think about him being the first pitcher off the board, and it really speaks to the lack of, of top-end talent that's healthy in this class because in, in seemingly every conversation that I've had about Cooper Jerpy, people really like him. Uh, he's got a really unique attack angle, throws from a lower slot, has a fastball that really averages around 90, 91, but it plays up with just pretty elite um, underlying characteristics on the pitch and his secondaries have progressed. But almost everyone that I talk to says, yeah, in a normal draft class, this is a guy who's maybe going in the second and you feel good about that pick there. And then we're talking about that guy as the first college pitcher off the board. Um, you can see why teams are a little bit down on the class. Uh, there, there are some guys, um, I don't know how many you want to get into, but it seems like if you're picking in the 20s and you want college pitching, I feel like you're in a good spot because there are a lot of pitchers in there who make sense on talent in that range and you're not feeling like you're reaching to get a demographic that you covet, but you're just letting the... Um, the, the players who naturally fit in that range fall to you. A Blade Tidwell is perhaps an interesting arm for Tennessee. Uh, throws really hard, has really impressive stuff. And even he dealt with a shoulder issue earlier this year. But then you've got guys like Landon Sims and Reggie Crawford who 
and I'll even include Connor Prelip in this conversation, even though he's throwing a few bullpens. All of these guys are are guys who win healthy. They showed stuff that looked like top 15, top 10 um, sort of talent. Connor Prelip specifically was a guy who, as an underclassman, people were talking about him as a potential 1-1 pick. Um, and then he has Tommy John surgery, does not have a ton of, of innings under his belt in college. And so far, the stuff has not gotten back to his his pre-Tommy John self, um, but, but that should come. So it'll be interesting to see what strategies teams use. Are, are they going to push some of these college pitchers up who, who maybe fit lower down in, in other draft classes and, and try and go for underslot deals? Are they going to get more aggressive with a riskier demographic on the high school side and, and take a player who they typically maybe would be reticent to take? Or are they just going to say, you know what, we're going to ignore arms entirely. It's not a good class for that. We're going to take the best hitter who we can get. And then we'll find our arms later in the draft where it makes more sense on talent. I'm, I'm really curious to see what sort of strategies teams employ. And I think we're probably going to see a number of all of those used, just depending on the org and depending on the philosophy. So let's keep it right here and, and steer it to the White Sox perspective. Picking at 26, you just named a bunch of college pitchers and we will revisit. I do want to revisit the Bloodlines conversation because you talk about position players, the amount of skill in the top 15, at least projected it's astonishing to see the the amount of players who have fathers, you know, professional big leaguers, sons of an NFL pro bowler. It's really, really interesting to follow this year. But relative to the White Sox, if you could just maybe project somebody, <laughs> putting you on the spot to project somebody <laughs> to the White Sox at 26, and then give us an evaluation as to why and what you like about the player and are maybe concerned about the player. Well, in our last mock, we had Jordan Beck um, to the White Sox. I think that's an intriguing pick. He makes sense around the back of the first, maybe a little bit after in, in terms of talent. Uh, and he is uh, a right fielder for Tennessee, the best college baseball team in the country. Extremely physical, six foot three. Um, looks like a pro slugger right now, and he has the power to profile in that capacity. Really big raw power. And earlier in the year, he was hitting exceptionally well he is really wearing out the right center gap um, showing easy juice the opposite field the swing and miss wasn't a huge concern and he's also a, a pretty freak athlete for his size and his strength so he was a guy who, who was getting some feedback that yeah, he could be the first college outfielder off the board he's cooled off since then um, some of the swing and miss issues have come back on uh, especially as as he's gotten into sec play um, and he wasn't one of the better performers just in terms of average on that tennessee's team which i'm curious if if that'll maybe give teams some pause if they'll be kind of curious about why he didn't perform better. Uh, but he's been the three-hole hitter for that team the entire season. He's got a ton of power. Profiles as, as kind of your prototypical right fielder um, if everything works well. So I think that's an interesting one if if the Sox want to go hitter. Um, like I was saying, I think there are pitchers who make a lot of sense in this range. I think maybe even with where the White Sox are at in, in, in terms of their organization, depending on how the board falls, it might make sense to take a better pitcher or, excuse me, take a pitcher in this range. Last time I had looked, the, the White Sox pitching in their minor league organization was not – uh, it was not looking too great just in terms of metrics compared to the rest of the league. Um, so maybe they do feel like one of these pitchers who falls to them, if they have an injured guy who falls, let's say a Landon Sims uh, gets to them. He, I mean, he is a guy who has arguably 270 grade pitches in his fastball and his breaking ball. Outside of Kamar Rocker, I don't know that you could really find uh, a better college breaking ball. Connor Prelet from the left side might, might be another guy that you would point to. Um, but he was looking like a potential top 10 pick he is a guy who throws extremely hard has performed in a relief role um and similar to guys like the white talks have taken in recent years like a garrett crochet who worked out pretty well um landon sims is a guy who could move really quickly through the minor league system in a reliever role and i think he also throws enough strikes to profile as a starter obviously the the injury will slow that down a little bit but if he gets back and he's healthy his stuff fits in in really whatever role you want to put him in so he's an intriguing arm i think there are a lot of college outfielders in general that fit in this range there are a lot of pitchers that fit in this range um there are some high school players i think there are going to be a run on the premium high school players before uh, where, where the White Sox are picking. Um, and then there's some intriguing guys a little bit lower who are getting – they're getting some chatter, top 10, like a, a Henry Bolte is not a name that I've specifically heard tied to the White Sox, but he's a name – he's a toolsy 
physical high school hitter who has some hit questions, um, but has some chatter throughout the first round and could go before uh, a guy like Tucker Toman um, reminds me a little bit of, of Colson Montgomery from a year ago in the sense that he's just been getting a lot of helium as we approach the draft. He's an offense oriented high school infielder with a really good hit and power combination. Uh, he's a switch hitter, probably brings less value defensively than Colson did at the same time. Not, not as good of an athlete. But those are some names who I feel like could make some sense. Um, and obviously, just to put this out there, this far out, we're, we're all kind of speculating and guessing and more kind of putting um, names in the ranges that we're hearing than players specifically tied to teams. You hear some buzz, but it's hard to have too much confidence when you have 25 teams picking in front and even the teams themselves really haven't um, narrowed their list down or, or know which direction they're heading. But I feel like it would make sense, a lot of sense for the White Sox, just where the talent seems like it's pooling this year um, to go pitcher. They could they could get a really good value or they could just get a, a performing college arm that, that fits in that range. So some of these top projected picks – Carlos, Drew Jones, Elijah Green, just to name a few, Cam Collier, Justin Crawford, Jackson Holiday. I mean, these guys are rich in their bloodlines. What are some of the expectations that Baseball America has for these names? And, and do you see yourself looking back in a few years at this draft class to say, wow, this is pretty special? Yeah, I think so. We're, we're, we're working on a few stories for this for our draft preview magazine that's coming up. And it certainly is the most impressive Bloodlines class that I've covered. I'll have to do a little bit more research to see if there are any others that stand out. But like all the guys that you mentioned are, are pretty consensus first round talents. If any of those guys fell outside of the first round at this point, I would be really surprised. And even guys like Brooks Lee, uh, Robert Moore have, have ties to baseball um, with their fathers being coaches and the GM of the, of the Royals. Um, you mentioned Elijah Green, who his father was a really impressive football player. I mean, Jace Young, his brother was drafted in the first round. Like, really go throughout the entirety of our, our first round or our board, the top 30 players, and it seems like every other player has ties to the big leagues in some capacity or baseball or another sport at a very high level. I think you could debate like how important that really is, but I, I do know that the industry values that. There is a lot that you can gain as a player um, by being around the game basically from for your entire life at that level. Um, having the instruction from a father who played at the big league level and teaching uh, your son how to kind of go about to go about things, how to deal with failure, what you need to do to make the most of your ability. They're, they're just inherent advantages that you have by being around the game at that level and the resources that that you just have at your disposal that if, if you don't have someone who was part of the game or you have none of those ties, you just have never been exposed to that. So there's there's certainly something that, that is gained by the player in my mind. Um, and, and I don't know, again, like I said, I don't know how much you value that. Like it's not going to lump you over a player who's clearly head on the board, but it, it certainly matters to some degree. And it's, it's just honestly cool to see this collection of players with, with fathers who've been in the game and are such notable players. Like Drew Jones is, is maybe the best defensive center fielder that I've seen in high school. It would be him and, and Pete Crow Armstrong, who are the two that really stand out as, just wow defensive center fielders and, and the fact that his father is arguably one of the best defensive center fielders of all time that's just really cool to see i think it's fun for the game um hopefully for for people who are maybe less diehard draft fans that's just a way to get into the draft a little bit more and get get excited um having a guy like jackson holiday uh whose father was a really impressive slugger in the big leagues for a long time uh being a different player than his dad he's, he's certainly a little bit different uh, an all-around toolsy high school shortstop left-handed hitter um i just think it's fun i mean it, it's cool to see all these players doing so well with with maybe having higher expectations than um just a random kid who, who doesn't have any ties but for me it's fun and and it certainly seems like one of the best bloodlines drafts um that we've had in a long long time there's no i in team but there is one in indeed and that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours when you're hiring you need indeed Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great, 
talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash blue wire sports offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash blue wire sports. That's indeed.com slash blue wire sports and support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire sports terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed. Carlos, Baltimore up at the top again, obviously probably keeps us guessing until like three o'clock that Sunday afternoon, I would imagine. Um, just yeah, cause, absolutely. You know, just because and everybody will have different opinions in their mocks, like from here to then. Some will have just Drew Jones and go chalk and others will have him cutting a deal. You know, like they, they took the best player with Rushman. To me, Drew Jones seems like pretty consensus 1-1 for everybody. I, mm-hmm. I mean... What do you? Th- I mean, it's it's obviously five weeks out. Like they could do yeah. that, or they could go deal hunting with their seventeen million dollar bonus pool. I just, you know, I, I think I feel like for the casual, like you know, people that want to turn on, just tune in and watch mm-hmm. something. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you take Jacob Barry at one, people are kind of like, what the heck's going on here? But you know, <laughs> yeah. like how how yeah, yeah. how if that pop- happens? I might also say, what the heck's going yeah, on? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like, I feel like they can still add a bunch of good players, even if they spend mm-hmm. whatever eight million dollars at number one. So I, I guess, what do you think in five weeks out? Yeah, uh, I'm a bit tired of the Orioles picking at the top of the draft because they're such a conundrum. They're so hard to figure out. They they seemingly always keep their options open. They're not afraid to take a non-consensus player at their spot, cut a deal, and move some money around. That that makes it a real a real challenge to do mock drafts. And when that team is starting things off, um, it makes it even harder. If there's a team like I remember in I think actually the first year that I did. A mock draft. It was um, Casey Mize was the one one, and he was kind of the consensus top player there. And it felt like for a long time, we kind of knew, yeah, that the, the Tigers liked him. They were taking him one one. Not really a question. Let's move on to the next teams and figure it out. With the Orioles picking one one, that's really never been the case. They've taken a few different strategies while picking in the top five in the last few years. Though all of those players have been of the college hitter demographic, and that that's maybe the one um, point that I look at and wonder, hey, like. They are picking 1-1 again, like 2019 with Adley Rutschman. There is a consensus top player in the class, like you mentioned with Drew Jones. I think that's definitely the case. All the feedback that we've gotten to this point has Drew Jones as the clear top player in this class. Maybe not to the same degree that Adley was the, the clear number one in the 2019 class, um, but certainly still the top guy. Would the Orioles still take that player, even if it's a high school hitting demographic? Um, they've really played in that college hitter pool in recent years. I'm not sure. It, it, it's tough. And I think there is there is some real noise with guys like Jackson Holiday and guys like Tamar Johnson and, and both of the top two college hitters that we have on the board, Inna Brooksley and Kevin Parada. I think from the Orioles' perspective, it makes sense to keep all of your options open and not, not telegraph the player you want. All of these teams and all these players are playing these leverage games as we get closer. Um, so that's certainly a factor. But yeah, I think... I think all of these players could make sense. I'm not expecting us to get any clarity on what Baltimore is doing as we approach. Um, and I think also I would just say that you're, you're going to see the same few names in the top spot for the Orioles because no one is going to have a lot of confidence in who the player actually is. Um, so just because you see the same few names, I would, I would say that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are doing mock drafts and, and certainly myself, that doesn't necessarily mean the confidence has gone up for us um, to have that player in that spot. It's just that we're hearing all these names. We don't really know what they're going to do at this point. So this is the guy we feel like who makes the most sense. Maybe that changes as we get closer. Maybe we kind of find out who Baltimore is really bearing down on. I would be surprised though. Um, so I think it's going to uh, keep teams on their toes and, and keep us on our toes as we approach the draft. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it kind of seems like it, a deep discount is like going to be tough to swing unless they take somebody that's like, you know, not significantly worse, but I mentioned Jacob Barry. I mean, it just like if mm-hmm. if you're going to take a holiday, you know, or even oh. or even Brooks Lee, I mean, those guys probably go two, three, four anyway. So they're not taking that much of a discount to go number one anyway. So that's that's where maybe it is just, you know, Jones is the safest and you just pay it because like you're, you're not going to save that much money anyway, unless you're going completely off the board. Well, it could be too that that maybe for while the consensus of the industry is that Drew Jones is a top player, maybe on on the Orioles board they have let's say they have three or four guys who they view as 
roughly equal on their draft board. Well, then once you get there, try and figure out what the signing bonus demands are going to be for each player. Um, and if you feel like you can get an equivalent talent for the cheapest price, maybe that's as simple as their decision is. They're like, okay, we, we don't really have a ton of separation for these top players on the board. We think uh, this is just speculation. We think Drew Jones, Jackson Holiday, let's just say Elijah Green, and let's say Brooks Lee. All of these players we view as roughly equivalent in terms of value. Um, so which one of these guys is going to take uh, the least amount of signing bonus. Then we get a player who we, who we view as just as talented as everyone else we have a chance to get, and we could put more money towards players later. Um, so that that could be what their draft board is and how they view it. And if that's the case, that, that makes plenty of sense. Um, from my perspective, it seems like Drew Jones is the best player in the class. So if I'm picking 1-1, I would just want to take him and, and figure everything out later. Um, but I'm also not the person who's, who's in charge and making these picks. So... Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think the one thing we can safely say is the top 10 is going to be chock full of hitters and all the players we've discussed. I would be shocked. Uh, I would be, let me change that. I would be surprised if any of them fell outside of the top 10. Uh, at the same time, we've seen in the last few years, uh, a player or two always always does seem to fall for whatever reason. Um, and I guess if, if we had one of these players in this elite tier drop, it, it's not unprecedented, certainly. But we're going to have a, a very hitter heavy top 10. One thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, you mentioned Kumar Rocker and, you know, earlier, the situation last year was so weird. None of us have seen the medical, obviously. We don't know what the Mets were looking at. I've always kind of thought like Kumar Rocker, even injured, is probably, was probably a, you know, a bargain last year for what he was signing for. So, you know, whatever. But because of him, there's like a new rule this year. So can you explain just, it? it's what players that are in like the top 300 that get physicals like have to be paid within 75% of slots. So can, can you go into what that rule is? And then I guess my counter to that is, does that, does that kind of indicate that a lot of teams are just going to take seniors in rounds five through 10? And then some of those players that take the physicals are just going to go on day three because there is no slot. It's 125 K then at that point. For sure. And yeah, I think just to, I, the, the Kamar Rocker rule is a bit of a, a misnomer because even last year, Kamar Rocker did not go through with any pre-draft medical. So even under these new rules, he would not have gotten any protection um, for, for signing bonus or slot value. He didn't, he didn't hand over any, any medical information prior to the draft, so he wouldn't have been affected. So I'm, I was a little surprised when this rule was announced that it was named the Kamar Rocker rule because he he wasn't a guy who who would have been affected by it because he didn't go through the procedure in order to get the protection that you're mentioning um if you are invited to the combine and identified as a top 300 player in the class by mlb and usa baseball who run the event you have a chance to go to the combine participate in pre-draft interviews participate in on-field workouts uh, athletic assessments and a medical process uh, where you can hand over basically your medical information to teams so so they can see what's going on to incentivize players to do this they have changed the rules to where like you said, you get 75% of the slot value at the selection where you're picked at. So that that offers some benefit to players, although we'll see how, how these top players deal with that because you're, you're handing over a lot of information uh, that teams are, are just going to use against you if something comes up. Uh, so, so teams, players, excuse me, players and their advisors really don't want to give over this information. Uh, I'm sure all of the top players are going to have their own medicals. Uh, and if everything looks good with them, uh, maybe they think it's worth it to go through this process, get that protection. But like you said, I think there, there's also another addition to the rule where if you're selected, if you're selected on after rounds 10 and you've gone through this process and you qualify as a top 300 player, you get at least $50,000 signing bonus. Uh, so there is some protection, even if you're drafted on day three. Uh, but I think you're right. There, there are plenty of senior signs throughout the country who teams are going to take. And just because those few seniors who are in this top 300 and go through the, the medical, it certainly doesn't mean that teams are going to just feel like they have to take those players. They're, the reason that those players sign for so little every year and the reason teams do it is because there are so many of those players uh, who have similar talent levels who are willing to take those deals because they know if they don't take that deal, if they get to call them, they say, hey, we want you in the fifth round. We're going to sign you for 5000 yes or no. 
if the player says no, they're moving on to the next senior on their list because there are just a number of those players they can keep going through. And they're not taking the player because they view him as the best talent. They're taking the player so they can afford others they've drafted earlier. Uh, so I do think you're right that that any senior who's in that that range, unless they are like a priority senior sign who teams know there's going to be a lot of competition from other teams to get this player, they're just going to fall to, to day three, like you said. So it'll be really interesting to see how much or how significantly the, the whole senior sign process is changed at all this year. Um, and I guess that's something we really won't know until we go through with it. I, I feel like there are enough options for teams to continue taking those really cheap players to afford more expensive guys further up or, or early on day three, however they want to do it. Um, but that's basically uh, how the rules are explained. And I guess we will see how many people go through with it. Um, it seems positive for the players, I would imagine. But like I said, this, this being so different from the NFL draft where you don't really declare for the draft makes it a bit challenging. You mentioned the MLB Draft Combine, and it starts this week. It's in San Diego, and I bring it up because last year, White Sox amateur scouting director Mike Shirley brought up the fact that he made note of Tanner McDougal and Colson Montgomery at the Draft Combine. How much does it matter to organizations, and how much does it matter to the player in terms of boosting their stock? Yeah, it was interesting. Last year was the first year where we saw that take place. I think Colson was actually one of the best prospects who was at the event and actually playing. I think Henry Davis also tended, but but just for interviews. This year, the field is, is significantly better. Uh, I'm not sure if that's because of the location or just because... Uh, advisors kind of saw how the the event went the first year and were like, okay, we, we feel comfortable with this now. Or maybe it's it's as simple as uh, the new incentives of the CBA that we were just talking about that makes it worth worthwhile for the players to go. But there are a lot of a lot of players who should be going in the first round this year. Um, I would imagine the event is uh, more heavily scouted than it was the initial year. It seems like they've done a really good job getting some of these priority players. Uh, in, in terms of how much it, it moves the needle and changes stock, I think probably would have more an effect for pitchers uh, who come to the event, like a guy like Connor Prelip, um, who's supposed to throw at the combine this week. I would imagine his his lever to change his draft stock is is quite a bit longer than some of the other players who have established uh, what they've done this year in terms of their performance as, as hitters. Um, the guys who are coming off of injury, it definitely matters for them. And if, if Connor Prelip comes and, and throws and it has the same stuff that he had while he was healthy with Alabama a year ago, he could significantly improve his stock. I think also the the one-on-one meetings, um, those are valuable for teams as well. It's, it's harder to put like a quantifiable number on how much that does matter, but all of these teams do a lot of homework on makeup of the player and having those meetings certainly helps for the higher ups in an organization to get a better picture of, of what's going on with the player between the ears. So I think those matter. Certainly the medicals matter. I'm kind of curious to see with, with the field being better in terms of on-field talent, uh, if that'll help those players or, or make more of a difference. Because I think also with something like an NFL combine, um, I'm not an expert on the NFL draft by any means, but it, it really feels like the combine metrics and performance matter significantly and, and can heavily improve a player's draft stock or make it fall. Baseball is a little bit different where the, the measurables don't really matter as much that you could do in that, in that sort of setting. Um, in a round of batting practice, I don't know how much you're really going to learn that you didn't know previously. Um, same with a, a few games. You only get a couple at-bats for hitters, and there's a chance you don't get pitched to. They're just all sorts of things that make a, a combine environment feel less impactful and less meaningful in the short term compared to an NFL draft. But it certainly matters to some extent. Um, I think it's more more a case of teams kind of just continuing to bear down and go through the process than anything else. But I could be wrong. So, Carlos, I want to ask a you know a strategical question in in regards to the White Sox, and then just a couple of names I've heard them tied to. You know, twenty nineteen, obviously they took Andrew Vaughn. It's kind of a no brainer up there. But then you know they they went through like a bit of an organizational shift, and they you know they took Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist and James Beard, and they they just had been so college heavy previously. And then you know with the five round draft, it's crochet, and they overslotted Jared Kelly. This has kind of become a theme for them. Because last year they went back-to-back preps with the position players, as we've talked about. Um, they paid Sean Burke over slot. They paid Tanner McDougal over slot. But then, you know, rounds four and then six through ten, they're paying guys 10 or 20K. So my guess is they have the – so 
they have the third smallest bonus pool in the class. My guess is this is going to be similar. They're going to spend most of their money on their top four picks. Um, you know, they're going to go cheap and then you're going to try to get a couple of guys on day three. Do you like that type of strategy or would you, you know, would you prefer to kind of play it more straight, um, throughout day two? Yeah, I, I hate that strategy. Just not, not even from an is it is it a smart strategy or is it a bad strategy? Just from a viewer who's watching the draft and wants to see teams take the best players, I hate it. I wish I wish baseball moved to a hard slotting system and implemented pick trading. So you still afford teams flexibility if they want to maneuver in the draft and they value a player that's maybe a little lower on the industry's board. They value that player higher. Maybe you trade your pick down to take that player um, and acquire more picks for later. Um, I really don't. I don't like when when teams try to get really smart and really creative and let the best player on the board go past you because you want to take a guy who you think is still good, but you can sign them for cheaper and then you can throw more money to other players. Like I would much rather just see what the draft board looks like if every team is taking the best player available. To me, as a, from a, from a viewer's perspective, that's much more fascinating than oh, we can't afford this player. We're not going to give this player this much money. Um, so we're, we're going to pass on a, a player who we clearly have higher on our board because whatever formula we have to determine value said that was the smart move to make. I just think that's less exciting. Um, while still acknowledging that that might be the the smartest way to operate given the rule set and given the picks teams have to work with and where they're picking in the bonus pool. Like it could very well be the case that that's the smartest thing to do. I just think as a fan of, of the draft, I want to see these teams take the best player. Like who do you think is the best player? There's there. It's so hard to separate players in a baseball draft. Once you get outside of like the elite, even once you get outside of like the top 10, I would love to see how teams are lining up these college outfielders. How are teams lining up uh, some of these really exciting high school left-handed pitchers that we have, like a Robbie Snelling or a, a Brandon Barriera? Um, and, and we don't ever really get that. You basically have to wait until the draft is over, sort the draft board by signing bonus to get some idea of what the true like industry-viewed talent in the class was. So I don't love it from a strategic point of view. I think it can make some sense you have to feel really confident with your evaluations and, and, and I just think the draft is such a wild card and, and the hit rate falls off so quickly. If I was picking, I would want to just take the best player on the board every time I was picking. Um, but the financial component is just something that I don't personally have to deal with. So I can easily see where I'm just maybe undervaluing how, how difficult that can be to, to just take the best player on the board. Cause I mean, if you did that realistically, you'd be taking a lot of high school kids who you're not signing. So there are just a lot of complexities with how the financials work in the draft that I don't think is ideal as a fan that teams have to navigate. And I don't, but I'm curious if you guys like the strategy as, as a fans of a team, is that something that you get excited about or would you rather just have them take the best player on the board? I mean, it would be nice if you could do it. I just don't think you can. It's just so hard because of the, the way the slotting system is like when, when uh, Nick Hosteller ran the White Sox drafts, they kind of did this, but at least they, like they, they would over slot, you know, like you took Gavin sheets and, and uh, like steel Walker in the second round with $2 million. Like I would much rather them do this, you know, where, where at least it's prep guys, but yeah, I mean, we've had to, I'm with you on the preps though. I, like, I love like, the upside of the high school players. Like I've had to tell readers and listeners, it's like, you know, like they're going through the second day of the draft and it's like, how did they do? It's like, I, I don't know. I need to see their 10 picks on day three. Cause, cause you're right. Like, and then you you stack them like I usually put them in order, you know, the top twenty by signing bonus because that tells you exactly how they feel about guys. Like yep. lately, That's lately, the first five... thing I do when I get all the signing bonuses when after signing day, and I, I get all that information as I take the whole draft, I sort by signing bonus and see who kind of jumps out. Yeah, like lately, six through ten for them has been college relievers that one of their scouts likes, you know, and and they've actually they've had some success. Like they've got some guys to the big leagues doing that, but. Yeah, it's just, it's the whole thing is, it, like, if you're somebody that's like, I love the NFL draft, I love drafts, like, I'm going to turn on the baseball draft and pay attention to this, like, it's very strange and different, and you're sitting there with, you know, whoever, like, Kylie McDaniel's big board, like, why aren't you taking this guy that's, that's like, number one on the board, and, you know, that yeah. guy's going to Vanderbilt or whatever, and that's, that's why. That's why I also you know? think it's it's tough, and, and I don't know if, if 
going to hard slotting is even possible for baseball just because of the high school college split that you don't have to deal with um, with an NFL draft. Um, but but I would imagine that it's just a more accessible draft if you have a hard slotting system and you don't have to – it seems like every single draft, one of the key things we do is explain or at least try to explain to the viewers up front or maybe even before the draft starts. I don't I don't remember when, when Network has talked about it, but it's certainly something that gets talked about because, like you said, a casual fan who's turning it on and just kind of wants to see who their team might be taking might have no clue of, of how the financials work compared to the much more popular NFL draft. So – uh, I think there are still some some hurdles for for the baseball draft, and I, I don't know if those are hurdles that can be cleared. Maybe we're just going to have. I mean, it is a different system. You're going to have to just acknowledge the fact that these players are not going to immediately join your big league clubs, and and maybe that is is all you need to to just know that the MLB draft will never be as popular um, as the NFL draft. But certainly, the the financials having to have a math degree to figure out what these teams are doing isn't uh, isn't fun. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So, you know, just shifting before we let you go, just to a couple of guys, I, I know the, you know, the White Sox have always been and this year specifically. I think they, they like Drew Gilbert quite a bit. Um, he was on their area code team. Mike Shirley's very familiar with all of the, the Midwest guys. I remember when he was a, a two-way guy out of what Minnesota, I think it was a couple of years back. So, you know, anybody that's watched Tennessee kind of knows who Drew Gilbert is. Is, uh, is there any chance that he even gets to them at this point? And then what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, Drew Gilbert was. Uh, I think he was pretty popular on Twitter the other night for his surprise Pikachu face. But <laughs> he he has been the best hitter on the best team in college baseball, um, and has just rocketed up draft boards. Um, he's kind of a just toolsy all around player who has been a phenomenal producer with loud exit velocities, maybe a lot louder than than you'd expect given his size. He's a he's a shorter guy, but he he's filled out and he's strong. Um, really good contact ability. Controls his own well. Um, he walked just about as much as he struck out this season, and he rarely chases outside of the zone. Um, so just from an offensive standpoint right there, those are a lot of really positive indicators. That kind of performance in the SEC with those underlying um, exit velocity information uh, and, and just his approach at the plate, it seems really polished. Very few holes that you can really point to or, or, or that I'm aware of at this point. And then you look at the defensive side, he's been playing center field. Um, he's an above average runner, probably going to be an above average defender at the position. And if not, he's got a really good arm that would fit wherever you wanted to put him. Um, so I think he has been a huge riser. And, and just when you look at the profile, old school scouts, um, model heavy teams, uh, I think all teams are going to really like this guy. And he, he's 21 on our draft board right now. We've mocked him in front of the White Sox. I think it wouldn't shock me if he went in front. It wouldn't shock me if he got to them. I think he's certainly in play. Um, but maybe he's playing himself too high up the board at this point. It's It's close. So we touched on it briefly. You know, they were very prep averse, it seems like, for a long time. Last year, they went Colson Montgomery, West Cath, back to back. You know, I also I heard your most recent podcast where you talked about best player available and how it's like kind of a fallacy sometimes. And we just we just don't know because we're not in the draft room. These teams will always tell you they took the best player on their draft board. But if the White Sox go in with a similar strategy where they, you know, one of their options is is doubling up with with preps, a couple of the names that we've heard, Tucker Toman out of South Carolina, and then for weeks, like maybe even months, like I've heard Roman Anthony and, you know, I know he wasn't like on you know, he, he was, he was popular and then he wasn't, and now he's like kind of back up there. So those two guys, uh, what are your thoughts on those two guys? And then, you know, those are just like the two prep guys I've heard the most linked to them. Yeah. Big, big high risk, high reward. I think with both of those players, Tucker Toman is, is a guy who was super, super hot at his best points last summer over the showcase circuit and then looked completely lost, um, at other events. I remember going to East coast pro and area code games, uh, at East Coast Pro, he was expanding the zone, swinging at bad pitches, not making a lot of great contact. Um, and, and I was like, what is the approach at the play? What are the bat-to-ball skills? There's a lot of swing and miss here. It's a, it's a really steep swing. And then at area codes, literally fly from East Coast Pro straight to area code games. And Tucker Toman maybe has more barrels than anyone outside of uh, like a Jet Williams or a Malcolm Moore. He was one of the best hitters at that event. Everything he hit was hard. He was on time. He was... Um, he, he's just making much better swings. And so I, I came away from those two events really having no clue 
who was the real Tucker? What was he the first version that I saw who had a lot of swing and miss concerns? Was he the second who was just a, seemed like a really natural hitter with a lot of impact? Um, or was he some, somewhere in between, uh, and everything we've heard about Tucker so far this spring has been positive. Um, he's been slowly moving up boards. He's performed well. It seems like he's just been more consistent with his swing, with his contact ability. Uh, he's taken a few batting practices in front of a lot of teams that I've, I've heard really positive things about. And, uh, so for me, I don't have great feel for him just cause I saw such wildly different versions of him. Um, but he is a guy who, who's going to be very, bat first um he's not the best athlete defensively would be surprising for him to stick at shortstop probably more of a third base or second base and he might even have to move to the outfield so if if that's the case you really want to nail that hit tool projection i don't have any doubt about the power potential um so he he's a an interesting guy high risk high reward certainly and i think roman anthony fits that profile as well he hit one of the the furthest home runs that I've seen uh, in this draft cycle at the high school all-star game last year, um, right before the 2021 draft. Um, but he also struck out in his first three plate appearances of that game uh, and really throughout the summer showed a very uh, all-or-nothing approach where when he connected – you are going to see a really a really far home run driven to the pull side, and and if he didn't connect, you were going to see a lot of uh, pretty big whiffs. I think he he's made an adjustment this spring, made a lot more contact. He had the most hits of any player at USA Baseball's um, National High School Invitational uh, in April, which is a very high profile event where a number of players in recent years have have moved up draft boards and improved their stock. He made a lot of contact there. It wasn't always necessarily uh, barrels, but I think just not showing swing and miss against some really good arms um, was encouraging for a lot of teams. He's he's a big outfielder, runs well underway now, has a really strong frame, um, looks more like a corner outfielder to me, even though he's played center field and is actually a really good base runner um, at this level. I think as he kind of fills out physically, he's going to add a lot of strength, maybe slow down a little. But, I mean, he's got huge power now, and he, he still has more um, physical projection to go uh, as a left-handed hitter. So both of these guys, really power-oriented high school bats, who I'm sure the industry is maybe a little bit more split on these players than you would be with a, a Drew Gilbert, and, and that's probably why a guy like Drew Gilbert is higher on our board than, than some of these other guys. But um, if you were on the higher end uh, for these two on hit tool projections, there is a lot to like just with the power they bring to the table and the potential impact you could get in the lineup with them. It's always fun hearing the perspective from experts covering the Major League Baseball draft. And I love doing it because, you know, in the future, you could look back and, and listen to an episode like this and learn and then kind of put it into perspective as we uh, hopefully I won't try sound to, too dumb <laughs> <laughs> as we try to project the futures of these things Carlos great stuff as always thanks so much for jumping on the Major League Baseball draft is on July 17th so tell us what you got going on for Baseball America and with the podcast leading up to that date Yep. So we're going to expand the the rankings to the BA 500. We'll be rolling out regular mock drafts as we get closer, as we start hearing more information on on what's going on. Hopefully we'll be able to get a little mo- more clarity on, on teams like the White Sox who are picking in the back of the first, but uh, we'll see. So check out BaseballAmerica.com for all of those uh, draft reports and rankings and mock drafts. And then you can see me on night one of the draft on MLB Network if you are watching. But uh, other than that, thank you guys for, for having me and, and thanks for listening and thanks for supporting Baseball America. For, for those who do, we really appreciate it. There it is. Carlos Colazzo, MLB draft expert for Baseball America. That's a lot of fun. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you did too. My name is Mike Rankin, James Fox. Fantastic as always, always up on his information. This is the Future Sox Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Network and part of SoxMachine.com. If you want to become a patron, we really do appreciate it. So for Carlos and James, again, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. We'll talk to you next Tuesday right here, wherever you get your podcasts.